You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. It was a normal morning in Apple Creek, Ohio. In an Amish household, six small children stirred as the sun shone through the window. Then, a shriek rang out from the master bedroom. Inside, Barbara Weaver lay under the sheets, blood soaking through her white comforter. Hi, my name is Charlie Spicer, and welcome to Case Closed, the show where the bad guy doesn't get away with it, from Macmillan Podcasts. We're back today with our newest season. It's about the murder of Barbara Weaver, an Amish woman who was shot while she slept in her own bed. This season, we're going to do things a bit differently. I'm going to have a co-host, Christy Westgard, my producer. She'll help take us through the story and dive into the nitty-gritty details. Thanks, Charlie. I'm really happy to be here for what's going to be a truly wild season. We'll also have a lot of input from author Greg Olson, who co-wrote A Killing in Amish Country about this case with Rebecca Morris. I've been writing true crime since 1990. My very first book, which was called Abandoned Prayers, and this book, A Killing in Amish Country, both feature terrible things that happened in the Amish community. We wanted to do this case because it takes place in a community that's often misunderstood in pop culture. In our tech-centric world, the Amish can be the exception, and because of that, their community has a special hold on our imaginations. But we also wanted to do this case because it's a human story. It's a story about what betrayal can do to a person, a family, and a community. I think that when you look at the Amish community and you see how beautiful it appears, to us. We look at the quilts that are hanging on the line. We look at the little um, farms that are as neat as could be. And of course, the horse and buggy that kind of calls back to a simpler time for sure. But it's going on right now. And the appeal to me has always been what evil lurks behind the pretty. One important housekeeping note is that this story involves a lot of people who were small children at the time of the murder. We're going to use the same pseudonyms for them that Greg uses in his book, out of respect for their privacy. Now let's get back to the story. Christy, can you set the scene for us? Bring us back to the day of the murder. Sure. So we're in Apple Creek, Ohio, in Wayne County. And the unique thing about Wayne County is that it and the county right next to it, called Holmes County, together house the most Amish people in the world. What's funny about it or different about it, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I wrote that first book and today is that it's become a tourist destination of, of amazing proportions. And certainly the Amish communities, you know, they have that lure. 
they have that draw that makes most visitors just look at them and say, oh my gosh, this is charming. For our part, we've largely bought into this curated image. And that's what's made our victim, Barbara Weaver's story, so jarring, I think. I mean, Barbara was a mother of five who'd spent her whole life in this community. Apparently on the day before her murder, she was celebrating her oldest son, Harley's ninth birthday. That day was June 1st, 2009. The family was celebrating at Barbara's sister's house, Fanny Troyer. Fanny herself had four kids, all under the age of nine. The one person who's missing is Barbara's husband, Eli Weaver. At this point, the party is winding down, so two of Fanny's kids and four of Barbara's end up going back to Barbara's house for a sleepover. And I'm going to give a quick layout of where everyone's sleeping because there's a lot of people that are in the house at this point in time. Um, So the oldest kids, Harley and Susie, end up taking the living room couches that are right next to Barbara's bedroom. And then the three younger ones go to Barbara's bed because there's a storm happening this night. And so they want to be closer to her because they're a little afraid. Finally, the baby is in her own bedroom, but at some point in the evening, she starts crying. So the oldest girl, Susan, leaves the living room so that she can get away from the noise. At some point really early in the morning, Eli eventually comes home. And when he gets to the bedroom that he shares with Barbara on the main floor of this two-story house, he ends up carrying the three sleeping kids upstairs so that they can stay up there for the rest of the night. And by the time everyone has settled down, only the birthday boy Harley remains in the living room downstairs. And there's just a wall separating him from Barbara and Eli. And remember, there's a storm going on this whole time. So at some point, Harley recalls waking up at night to the sound of thunder. Or at least he thinks it's thunder. The next morning, Fanny Troyer's daughter Susie, who's sleeping upstairs, woke up and she began to get the younger ones ready. All of a sudden, she hears a scream from one of the children downstairs. She pounds down the steps and runs to the bedroom where she finds three of the kids staring at Barbara, who's bleeding in bed. So Susie ran to get Harley. When Harley sees his mother, he starts running to get help. Here's Greg with a little bit more on that. When they discovered their mother who had been shot up in the bedroom, the oldest boy did what any Amish kid would do, which is ran to the neighbors in order to make a phone call to get help because Amish don't have telephones. Um, One thing I will say about that is that, you know, there's an old joke, you know, of the forms of communication in Amish country, you know, could be telegraph, telephone, or tell an Amish. And telling Amish is the way to get the message out because these people have their own direct line to each other. It's not a phone line, but it's a deep connection to their community and to the people that they worship with. So they definitely know what's going on probably as fast as people that live um, outside of the community. Harley ended up rushing to his neighbor's house, the Yoders, who lived across the road and were family friends. Linda Yoder went with Harley back to the Weaver house. What she saw was devastating. Barbara's lips were blue, and there was blood on her comforter. She removed the blanket to reveal Barbara's bloodied chest and quickly put it back. Linda would later say, I wish I'd never pulled the blanket back. Soon after, she ran to another neighbor's house to let them know what had happened. 
Next, she dashed to the community phone to call for help. Linda's husband, Furman, gathered all the children into their house to keep them away as the ambulance and police pulled up to the crime scene. There's one question on everyone's mind during this chaos. Where is Eli? He missed his son's birthday, and now he's gone again as his family is scrambling to figure out how things went so wrong. Barbara's neighbor, Furman Yoder, knew the answer. Eli had gone fishing. He had an alibi, and there were a group of men that were in that van that went up fishing with him that could all vouch for him. Furman took what he knew and went to the phone shanty. There, he phoned Eli's friend Steve, who was fishing with him. Furman waited for Steve to pass the phone to Eli. But when he finally told Eli the bad news, Eli didn't want to hear more. He passed the phone back to Steve, who said they'd come back ASAP. Now, as this is happening, Detectives Michael Maxwell and John Chuhi arrive at the Weaver's household. And these two men are joined by the coroner's assistant, Luke Reynolds. So this group makes a left through the front door of the house, walks down a hallway, and they turn into Barbara's bedroom. And when they get the first glimpse of the crime scene, this is what they see. Barbara's body is still lying on the bed, and barring the gruesome bits, she looks beautiful. She has a young, freckled face framed by dark blonde hair. Detective Maxwell gently moves back the comforter so that Luke can take pictures of the bullet hole near her right chest. A scan of the house shows that this wasn't a house robbery gone bad. There's still money that sits on the kitchen counter, and there's a cash box in the basement that has gone untouched. In the days that followed the murder, the police interviewed many people in Barbara's Amish circle. They interviewed her neighbors, the Yoders. They interviewed Fanny Troyer, Barbara's sister. They interviewed her husband, Eli Weaver. This story is about Barbara, but understanding her way of life will be key to understanding how and why this tragedy happened. After the break, we're going to tell you about the world in which Barbara lived, the Amish community. So stay tuned. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Case Closed. We're going to get back to Barbara's story soon, but first I just want to go over a brief timeline of when Amish culture first sort of entered our public consciousness. I mean, Greg had said it earlier, but just 30 years ago, Amish country was in no way considered a tourist destination. It turns out our fascination with Amish culture really started in 1985, and it involves Harrison Ford and Hollywood. Carter didn't tell me about the eyewitness. Yeah, Amish kid, eight years old. A man of force. I'm a police officer, ma'am. I have to talk to the boy. 
a woman of faith. You don't understand. We have nothing to do with your laws. So that's a clip from the movie Witness that you just heard. In it, Harrison Ford plays this policeman who goes into Amish country, and he's trying to protect an Amish boy who's just witnessed a crime. And this movie really put Lancaster, Pennsylvania on the map. And it's sort of the precursor to a whole new genre of entertainment that explores the lives of these plain people. One of the runaway successes that we have to talk about when we're talking about this is TLC's show Breaking Amish. Today I'm going to tell my grandpa we're going to New York. I know he's going to be disappointed. Well, I just lost my family. I have nothing. I guess I'm going to go pack and be out of here. We've seen more of Amish culture on TV. We've seen Breaking from the Amish. We've seen the Amish Mafia. We've seen all these different shows that capitalize on that kind of life. And that wasn't evident at all, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So I think a lot of people come now more prepared to see what the Amish world is like, and they're drawn to it because of TV. It's pretty clear why we're so fascinated by the Amish. When we live in a society that is dominated by technology and pushes for constant contact and communication on a global scale, it's nice to imagine a society where none of that exists, where you can kind of escape from the go-go-go of everyday life. I think it's also human nature to kind of scandalize things that we see as really pure. So case in point, there's a whole genre of romantic novels that are set in Amish country, and they're called Bonnet Rippers. And they're all about imagining the hidden desires that must run through the minds of these pious people. But in reality, the Amish are way more diverse than pop culture leads us to believe. They're an incredibly dynamic community with tons of different sects. What sort of Amish community did Barbara live in? So Barbara was part of the Andy Weaver Amish. But before we talk about that particular sect, I want to go over some of the basics about Amish culture. In Ohio, there are about 60,000 Amish people, and the majority live in Wayne and Holmes counties. Barbara, Eli, and their children lived in a town called Apple Creek, which is in Wayne County. And like many Amish in this area, the Weavers didn't have electricity. So think no water heaters, no refrigerator. And rules like this are known as the Ordnung, which is German for order. Now, the Ordnung isn't like the Bible. It's not a piece of text. It's unwritten, flexible, and it changes with time. And that's where a lot of the differences between Amish communities happen. Now to get back to the Andy Weaver Amish, which is the sect that Barbara and Eli were a part of. This group tends to be slower to change the Ordnung. So Andy Weaver Amish have pretty strict rules about hair length, facial hair, and especially electricity. The Andy Weaver Amish sect was very, very conservative. They really did not believe in any kinds of the things like the Mennonite groups would have, which would be electricity or, you know, the use of a car, even running water within their homes. This was a very um, simple life that they lived and not to be confused with, you know, Mennonites or other groups that had more freedoms. Mm -hmm. 
right now is the perfect time to bust some myths about Amish customs. So myth one, Amish people don't ride in cars. It's a pretty classic depiction to see a horse and buggy when you're thinking about Amish people. And it is true that they do rely on the horse and buggy for a main mode of transportation. But they actually can ride in cars. They just can't drive them. And the sect that Barbara, Eli, and their community were a part of does allow Amish members to ride in cars. And this is going to be an important detail to remember for Barbara's case. So myth number two, they can't use telephones. Well, they actually can. So that's how Linda Yoder called the police after she found the body. Correct. They just don't have them in their own homes. Instead, they have a community phone in something they call a shanty, which the best way to describe is a building that looks like an outhouse, but instead of a toilet, there's a phone. And there's a pretty good reason for why the Amish don't want to bring phones into their own homes. They figure that if people have phones inside of their homes, then they're not going to go and visit their neighbors as much. Why would you walk and make home visits if you can just ring someone up? So not having a phone in the house is really just about building community for them. Now we're getting to the biggest myth of all, myth number three that the Amish live in a world without any, like, hatred, violence, or capacity for committing horrible acts. Now, that one's just plain wrong. And here's what Greg has to say about that. Every kind of problem we have in our society, they have. They have affairs. They have kids who run away. They have drug problems. They have all of those things. There's one other key thing to mention about the Amish and their culture, which is that they aren't allowed to be recorded, so you can't capture them through audio or video. That means we're not actually able to have any Amish voices on here, so we're going to be using voice actors. Also, there aren't any photographs of Barbara beyond the crime scene photos available. Plus, when it comes to issues involving the police, the Amish are notoriously tight-lipped. Here's Greg on that. The police... The sheriff and the Amish, it's a tenuous connection at best. The Amish don't report crimes. They don't want to get involved with our world, the English world, as they would call it. And the police do look the other way on a lot of things that happen in Amish country. You know, there have been cases, however, where the sheriff has pulled over, you know, a young Amish man who was drunk driving his buggy. Those kinds of things, you know, make the news because they seem funny to us. But a lot of other crimes don't really get reported. Um, And the Amish do prefer to handle things on their own. So it's pretty hard for anyone outside of Barbara's tight-knit community to speak to who she really was. Even for Greg, who is now very well-versed in the ways of the Amish, it was a learning curve. All I really knew about the Amish was from the movie Witness. That's about it. Because in the West Coast where we live, there are no Amish. There, you know, we don't have the kind of experience that people on the East Coast or even in the Midwest might have. So I really didn't know anything personal about it. I was just fascinated, like most people would be. And I was intrigued enough, you know, to kind of follow the story into Amish country. To give you some more context, Greg is out in Seattle, Washington. But he's spent a fair amount of time in Amish country to research his books. 
And he's done research in some pretty unusual ways. One of the things that's different about this kind of a story is that you really have to go to the source and you can't go by, certainly by making a phone call because they don't have a phone. You can maybe get their address and write a letter and they're very good letter writers so they'll write you right back. But one thing that I found that was so interesting was a willingness to help tell the story but not to be identified as someone who helped. So they would tell me, you know, Greg, um, come at night, uh, park your car behind the barn, and, you know, and yeah, I'll be happy to help you. And one of the guys told me that he said, you know, he looked at me and he kind of shook his head. He was an Amish guy, and he said, I would rather hold shit in my hands than do the work that you're doing, Greg. And I thought, I, I think about that often, you know. I mean, he was he was helping me, but. So this is all to say that the Amish people are as insular as you can get. If you want to start digging around their more personal affairs, like Greg, it's like sneak through the woods off the record kind of work. And it's not because they're trying to be difficult. It's just a really complex culture with a ton of guidelines you and I will never fully understand. It's also what makes it so hard to leave. Now I want to finish up with the figures 10 to 15 percent. That's the 10 to 15 percent of Amish teens who actually end up leaving the church. And it's a really low figure. And that's even after a period of freedom Amish teens get called Rumspringa. I'll let Greg fill you in on that. You know, Rumspringa is that time where the young Amish have that single opportunity to really cut loose and experience the outside world. And the Amish community allows this. They promote it, actually, because they want their kids to be sure when they come back to the church. And really, the whole thing about the Amish religion is, you know, adult baptism, it means that, you know, when you're 18 or when you're ready, um, then you come forward and pledge yourself to the church. It's not an automatic. So why don't more Amish teens decide to leave after this phase? It seems to me that once you'd experience the outside world, driving a car, drinking alcohol, and wearing trendy clothing, it would be very hard to go back. Like I said, it's tricky. But there's one thing that the Amish make abundantly clear. If you leave, you leave everything. Family and friends, any sense of stability. You cut all ties to your past. The reason this matters in the case of Barbara and Eli is that this is a definitive moment for the two of them. For Barbara, her room springer was pretty tame. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But she was happy to come back and to be baptized. For Eli, this wandering period gave him a taste for the outside world. And he never really stopped wanting more. Though this story centers on Barbara, it's also about the ways in which tight communities can hide things from each other. It's a story about what can happen when people feel trapped. And like our last season, it's a case where we examine the question, who really pulls the trigger? Over the course of this season, we'll look at Barbara's first-hand account of her life. We'll look at online records of the people who live in the Amish community in Apple Creek, Ohio, and the surrounding area. 
and we'll see the ways the system helps and harms those who are being incriminated. This season will have twists and turns, so stay tuned. For our next episode, we're going to discuss Barbara and Eli, their lives as individuals, and their life as a couple. But that's it for now on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It's hosted by Charlie Spicer and Christy Westgard and produced by Christy Westgard. Scripting support was provided by Becky Celestino. Production editorial support is provided by Jasmine Faustino. Be sure to check out Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris's book, A Killing in Amish Country, for more about this case. You can find more information about Macmillan Podcasts at macmillanpodcast.com. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N podcast.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.